HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, from chocolate and sugarcane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the U.S., they're using this romance and fantasy to say dates are exotic and you should consume them. I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts in part because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market. It's not like other foods. We have very like personal feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today we hear from Daryl Goldstein. She's an emeritus professor of Russian at Williams College and the founding editor of Gastronomica, the Journal of Food Studies. Dara tells us about her time in Russia with the State Department in the late 1970s and how a bag of hard candies changed her life forever. Let's have a listen. My mother taught me never to accept candy from strangers. And for a good 25 years, I didn't and I remained safe. But everything fell apart when I went to the Soviet Union in 1978 to work for the United States Information Agency as a tour guide. This was a program that had begun in 1959. There was a series of exhibits set up in the Soviet Union and in the United States to teach each country about the other one and to try and maybe ease the Cold War a little bit. I had been studying Russian literature at Stanford and was totally immersed in Russian poetry, but my spoken Russian wasn't very good. And I also didn't really have a sense of what it meant to be in Russia beyond the books I was reading. So I felt that I had to go there. And it was quite complicated in those days to get permission to go. 
but I managed to be appointed as an exhibition guide for this American program. The USIA was part of the State Department, so I had to get security clearance. Anyway, the theme of the exhibition that year was American agriculture. And it was inherently problematic because in those years, there were terrible food shortages in the Soviet Union. And in fact, they had to import millions of tons of grain, of wheat and corn from the United States in order to feed not just the cattle there, but also the people. And it was pretty humiliating. So the theme itself was problematic. And I think as Americans, we didn't really help because video technology was new in those years. But we had a, a video running of an American supermarket in which we showed these lavish displays of vegetables and fruits. And the narrative was that any American housewife, all she had to do is go out to the store, walk in, look at this amazing display of fruits and vegetables from California, you know, from Mexico, from wherever that had been shipped in and were always there for her to buy. And she could get all the vitamins she needed and she had all the choice she needed. And it was really a slap in the face. So I was in charge of the pickles and preserve stand and also the pigs, which was interesting for a nice Jewish girl. I was hired for the second half of the exhibit. It had already traveled to three cities and the three cities I was hired for were Kishinev in Moldova, then Moldavia, Moscow and Rostov-na-Donu, Rostov on the Don, the ancestral home of the Cossacks, I might add, which was the third city. So we got through the fall in Kishinev where there was very little food at all. We were all quite hungry when we got to Moscow, and here's the big city. And it was also a very stressful job in many ways because it was during the Cold War, and there was a lot of antagonism. And it's hard to believe, but most Americans had never gone to these exhibits in the United States. I myself had no idea that they even existed because Americans weren't really interested in Soviet life. But the Soviets were obsessed with finding out more about America. And thousands and thousands of people came through these exhibits, not just to learn about American agriculture, that was not their primary interest, but to learn about American life. And after we finished our spiel about, you know, how many pigs were farrowed in the United States as opposed to the Soviet Union and how much we fed them and things like that, we were able to answer questions from the crowd and talk about the realities of American life. And it felt very honest to have this opportunity. And those of us who talked openly about it, you know, problems of racism and lack of food for some people, we tended to have very big crowds and we were like celebrities and people would actually follow us on the streets. And it was, it was quite heady, I have to say, for a young person being there. So in general, people would say to me things like, your dystrophic was the word that they would use because I was too thin by Soviet standards. And they wanted to fatten me up. And it wasn't just that they wanted to fatten me up, but they wanted to 
share what they had. Here we're talking about the bounty of American agriculture and all the amazing food we constantly had access to. And there was a pride there and they wanted to show us that they had wonderful things too. So they used to bring me gifts every day. And this was my great education in Russian food because I tasted their preserves. I tasted tiny eggplants that they would stuff with walnuts and hot peppers. And they would bring their brined pickles and sauerkraut and different beautiful jams made of lingonberries and berries, cloudberries that I had never tasted. And they would also bring me homemade goodies. And it was quite wonderful. And they'd bring me books and they'd bring me, you know, little gifts of all sorts. And usually at the end of my session, my arms were overloaded with presents from people. The Russians are so generous. So in Moscow, I felt as though everything had opened up because very sophisticated city, a lot of very educated people, a lot of dissidents who came to these exhibits because they wanted to communicate things to us that they thought perhaps we would then communicate to our government to maybe help them get out of the Soviet Union and the difficulty of their lives. I felt much freer to speak openly about all kinds of things. And it was at the very end of the exhibit, after an extremely cold winter, it was one of the coldest winters that Moscow had had in decades. And I think it was like the second to last day of the exhibit. And there had been one man who'd been coming regularly and asking very intelligent, interesting questions, which I enjoyed because it spurred me on to try to give intelligent, interesting answers. And I can still picture him perfectly. He had on uh, glasses with wire rims that seemed more, I don't know if trendy is the right word, but they, they weren't the usual heavy Soviet plastic dark rims. He seemed pretty dapper and his Russian was very beautiful and cultured. And he would come and we'd have a conversation. And on this day, when people were giving me gifts, it was time for my session to end. He gave me a bag of hard candies. And this is where I come to my mother's precautions against not taking candy from strangers. But it seems so totally normal in a way. I mean, it was just another one of these gifts, except that there are very special hard candies because they were so-called deficit item. Now, deficit item meant that you couldn't find them in the stores. They were round, but either they were very scarce or you had to know someone who had access to them. So just the fact that he had them was actually quite special. And these candies were called michta, which means daydream, which also made them seem even more alluring. There were individual heart candies and they were wrapped in pink, pink wrappers. And inside, oh, I'm starting to salivate as I think about them. I haven't had them in years. But inside the hard candy coating was a lemon filling and they really were like a daydream. They were just divine. So he gave me this bag of candies and he put them down on top of everything else. And I said, oh no, you shouldn't. These are really rare candies. I can't take them from you. And he said, no, I want you to have them. And so I was starting to make my way from the stand 
to go on my break and this mujik came pushing his way through the crowd. A mujik being a sort of derogatory word for a Russian peasanty person. He was unshaven, his clothes were not clean, he reeked of alcohol. He seemed like he was quite drunk. And he came up and in you know very slurred language said to me, Balit Galava, Galava Balit, Diamond Yakushits. My head is killing me. I have a terrible headache. Give me something to eat. And I was sort of stunned. It was very rude behavior, but everything was strange there. You know, everything didn't seem completely normal. It was a different reality. So I said, okay, you know, take some. And his hands were fumbling. It was like he had the DTs and he's trying to open this package of candies. And while he's standing there, a woman who was next to the man who'd given me the candies, she started yelling at the man who'd given me the candies, saying, how could you give our dear honored guest from the United States hard candies? That's shameful. And it wasn't so surprising because people were always publicly yelling at people. I mean, whenever I would sit on a concrete wall for a minute just to rest or to have a bite of something, older women would start screaming at me because I hadn't put a piece of newspaper down first and I was sitting on cold concrete and that meant that I could destroy my ovaries and never have babies because <laughs> they would get too cold. So, I mean, I was used to being yelled at. But this woman yelled at the man and she said, you should have given our dear guests something like chocolate. Chocolate was even more of a deficit item than heart candies. Very, very expensive. It could be like a day's wages for some people. And I said, no, no, of course not. I would never take chocolate. I just, I don't need it. I have these heart candies. I love them. Thank you. And the man seemed very embarrassed. But then after a minute, he said, well, you know, I happen to have some chocolate and I will give it to her. And I said, no, please, you know, I can't take it. But he insisted. So he passed the chocolate up to me and put it on this um, pile of things I had. I was still trying to leave the stand. And the mujik had wandered off a bit. But suddenly he reappeared and said, my head is still killing me. And I said, well, then take some chocolate. We'll be back with Dara in a moment. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com.
and the mujik had wandered off a bit. But suddenly he reappeared and said, my head is still killing me. And I said, well, then take some chocolate. And this chocolate was wrapped up in uh, brown paper. And so he comes and everything suddenly went into slow motion and he was unwrapping the bar and very, very slowly, it seemed endlessly. And he opened it and inside was half a bar of chocolate and a cassette tape. And he grabbed the tape and he held it on high and he started yelling, this is not a guide this is a CIA agent. And my heart just fell to my, what is it, my boots? <laughs> I just was in an absolute panic because I was sure that the man who'd given me the chocolate must be a dissident. And he was passing information out to me. And because I hadn't managed to succeed in taking it with me to the break room, and passing it on to whomever. He was going to be arrested, sent to Siberia, you know, sit in the gulag. And in effect, I had murdered him and I was beside myself. And so I immediately started screaming, give that back to me, it's mine, it's mine. And there were KGB agents, security guards stationed all throughout the exhibit. They were there to protect us, but also to keep an eye on people and see if there was any specific interaction between Soviets and Americans. And instead of running to my rescue from out of nowhere, these five hulking security guards came and surrounded me. And I tried to wrest the cassette from this Mujik's man, and obviously I was no match for a Russian Peasant. So he ran off and I'm surrounded by these guys and I'm pounding on them. It probably just felt like little hailstones pricking them. And they grabbed me and they twisted my arm and I tried to get away, but I couldn't get through them. But then I realized I could use my size to my advantage and I ducked under their arms and I ran after the man they had let him out through an entrance instead of through an exit. So suddenly it seemed like everyone was in cahoots. I caught up with him outside, but I couldn't get the tape from him. And he just started laughing and saying, it's mine now. And he obviously was no longer drunk and he had it. And I collapsed sobbing in the snow. Meanwhile, my fellow guides had run outside to see what was happening. And within a few minutes, this big limousine materialized from the American embassy. And I was whisked off to the embassy. Now, I have to say that during my stay in Moscow, the embassy had always been this kind of beacon for me. Life was really difficult there. And somehow seeing the American flag flying... Uh, it represented freedom and goodness and all of those things that America represented to others in the world. And so I was taken there and I was immediately whisked up to an upper floor. It was a high rise building that had been an apartment building that was now being used for the embassy. They were building a new one 
next door because this one was no longer secure enough. And it was in 1978-79 that they had detected uh, the use of microwaves to listen in on sensitive conversations. So they brought me up to this upper floor and inside a huge room, they had built a kind of Quonset-like structure out of what looked like aluminum foil. And I was taken into this and zipped into it with two more hulking guys. These were American State Department security guys. And that was equally frightening for me. And I realized that we were inside this structure because microwaves couldn't penetrate the foil. So it could be a secure conversation. And they started interrogating me about what had happened, about everyone that I had ever encountered during the two months that I had been in Moscow. I didn't want to give names of people because I didn't want to get any of my friends in trouble. So I was saying things like Ivan Ivanich, which is like saying John Smith. Of course, there are a million of those in Moscow. And basically, they said that I would have to be sent back home. And that really pissed me off, I have to say, because I hadn't done anything. And I didn't want to leave. I mean, I was completely shaken up, but I still didn't think it was an international incident. And so I said, if I'm on the front page of Pravda, the main newspaper there, in the morning, then I will leave. But if I'm not, I do not want to go home. And so we agreed on that. And they took me back to the hotel where all of the guides were staying. So it was dusk and the lights were very low because throughout the Soviet period, they never had really bright lights to save electricity. And so everything was dim and I felt grim and I felt like I had never really encountered anything that felt so evil as what had just happened, that things were so ugly that they would play out this way and that maybe I had murdered someone in effect and I just felt so bleak. And I was walking down the corridor to my room and at the very end, I saw another huge hulking guy, which seems to me to be the leitmotif of this story as I'm telling it to you. But he was standing at the end of the corridor with his legs spread and his arms behind his back. And I felt like he was just waiting for me. And he was just going to take me and take me off to Siberia too with this man who had probably already been sent to the gulag. And I was paralyzed. And so I ducked into a niche, like a little alcove. And I was just cowering there. And after what seemed like forever, I heard some noise and I peeked around the corner. And it turns out that he was a porter who had been waiting for someone's luggage. And he moved off with it. And I ran into my room and just collapsed on the bed. So the next morning, I went to the exhibition. It was the last day, and there had been no headlines in Pravda. I was feeling really shaky. My crowd was absolutely diminished. Instead of hundreds of people hanging on my every word, there were only a few dozen 
but among those few dozen were the man who had given me the candy and the woman who had yelled at him. And immediately I knew something was up. And he started saying to others in the crowd all kinds of negative things about the guides and who we were and how we were actually working for Voice of America. We were all spies. Voice of America was all Jews. I mean, it was just every kind of slur you could imagine. And at that moment, I realized that the whole thing had been a provocatia, a setup in order to undermine me so that the people listening to me would not believe what I said and would think that it was all propaganda. And that really made me angry. So I, I started vehemently disputing what he was saying. And I realized that it had been just another day in bad Soviet-American relations. But I was so disheartened by the whole experience that it really made me think twice about what I was doing with my life. And a certain part of me thought, I'm going to go back to the States and I'm not going to pursue things Russian. I don't need this kind of distress in my life or constantly to be thinking about the distress of other people's lives and I'll do something a lot easier. But I couldn't stop thinking about the inherent goodness of all of the Russians who had brought me food, who had shared their lives with me, who against all precaution had actually invited me to their apartments to talk to me, to learn about American life, to share their impressions of Soviet life, and to always be so generous, and to teach me about Russian food. And I realized that that's what I wanted to do with my life, to take this generosity, this hospitality, and communicate it to Americans. And at that moment, a certain seed was planted in me, and I came back to the States and I started writing my first cookbook called Alarus, a cookbook of Russian hospitality that then became a taste of Russia. And I've just published another cookbook about Russian food, which continues to communicate my love for the Russian people. We're not talking politics here, but just the people and the great Russian culture beyond the North Wind, Russia in recipes and lore. So taking candy from strangers, though momentarily it turned out to be not a good thing, as my mother had taught me, in the end gave me my life's work. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory 
a cross-sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hungertohealthcollaboratory.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 